Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company based in upstate New York and is committed to making the best artist materials for artists to make work with. I've been using Golden Paints and Mediums for 20 years and I swear by it. You can pick them up in just about every art store and online at goldenpaints.com. If you would like to support this podcast, visit patreon.com slash soundandvisionpodcast. When you make a donation to the podcast, you can have your name mentioned on a future pod and even get a hand-drawn thank you. Sound and Vision is made possible by listeners like you. Elise Ferguson is an artist based out of Brooklyn. She was born in 1964 in Richmond, Virginia, and received her BFA from the Art Institute of Chicago and her MFA from the University of Illinois at Chicago. She's had solo shows at Odd Arc in Los Angeles, Romer Young in San Francisco, Halsey McKay in East Hampton, 106 Green in Brooklyn, White Columns, and many more. She's had numerous group shows, and her work has been covered in Contemporary Art Daily, Art News, Interior Design, The New York Times, New York Magazine, Newsday, and many others. She's done residencies at McDowell Colony, UNLV, Barton College, and the Socrates Sculpture Park Residency. I stopped by Elise's Ridgewood studio for a conversation about Florida youth, seeing live music, being around fabric, navigating between sculpture and painting, and much more. Here's our conversation. Okay, got my gallon of coffee. Okay. Are you a coffee drinker? I quit coffee. You did? I drink tea. So tea doesn't... Cause tea Tea's ha- not as bad. It and has then, some caffeine. Like, you, I mean, honestly, if you really want to like, kind of like maintain a sort of like a psychological balance. Yeah. It's like less sugar, less alcohol, more exercise. Right. Less caffeine. Like basic good life recipe. Yes. I mean, I, I do the exercise and I do the, I try to rest and all that, but I can't yet give up the coffee. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, coffee's important. Well, the studies for the, the sort of antioxidant and keeping Parkinson's and uh, Alzheimer's away. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't, I haven't done those studies, but I'm, I'm grabbing onto those and And saying. And do you have those in your family? Are you like, is there someone that you know in your family that's had either one of those diseases? I don't know that, but. Um, if it's one of those things, you yeah. know, like when there's a supplement, you take it. Well, yeah, like the elderberry thing for like keeping from getting sick. I want to know that, but yeah, it's like the sambuca, sambucol or whatever it is. Oh. Anyways, it's this thing that's supposed to help your immune system. Are you a turmeric person? Uh, I did a little turmeric, but yeah. I've heard that it doesn't really <laughs> right. take. But that's the, the word. But my point, my, or my the the reason is, I feel like if psychologically it helps you feel better, I think that's important. Yeah. No, it's true. Like if you feel more, I get the flu shot every year. Yeah, and that one seems to work. Right. Because <laughs> I, yeah. I didn't get it for a while. I know I wasn't doing it forever, and, and I, I was just worried, like, because they always say like, "Oh, you may get flu-like symptoms." I'm like, so I, that would actually be enough of a reason for me not to bother forever and ever yeah but now i just get it but then i heard this like one in a zillion horror stories about some i met this guy in california who got the flu shot and he's like partially paralyzed from it 
So yeah. I try not to think about that guy. I mean, that the I would imagine that the odds of that are the same thing Very with me slim. getting hit by a B-48 on the way out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, if you're not quite a joiner on a thing and you see a, you see an example of like why you shouldn't join. Yeah. So I try not to think about him yeah, too much. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I got, I remember this was maybe, actually, I think it was when my son was a newborn or like mm. a one year old or something. Mm-hmm. But I remember over the Christmas holiday getting the flu with like 104 fever. Just, Ugh. it felt like someone beat me with yeah. a baseball bat for it a It is day. a weird, achy, bruisey feeling. 104 point something fever. Isn't just, that like hospital bound? Yeah. You, yeah. It was brutal. Yeah. And I said, oh, all right, I'm getting a flu shot. Right. Yeah. And knock on wood. No flus. No flus since. That's good. I mean, you could tell when you get something, but it's just not as severe. Yeah, I know. I think sometimes people say they have the flu, but they don't really have the flu. Right. Yeah. And the same thing with the stomach flu. They're like, I have the flu. It's like, mm, not really. And <laughs> yeah, you ate a bad oyster. Yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. vir- or stomach yeah. virus, which is brutal, right. brutal as well. Yeah. I, I mark my calendar every year. And I'm like, I know there's going to be two days where I'm just... Going to feel shitty. That stomach bug. Oh, really? You get a stomach bug annually? Usually. Oh, that's wretched. It's horrible. And is barfing involved? Definitely. Ooh. It's the main character. Yeah, I, I haven't it's thrown the up since role. the 80s. I don't, oh, really? I don't throw up. Yeah. I actually got food poisoning when I went on this Barcelona trip over Thanksgiving. Oh, no. <laughs> so you're prone. Maybe you need more um, kombucha. Well, I've been taking probiotics. Yeah. So but you got to eat, you know, you got to eat those cultures, like food. Yeah, know? I have the yogurt and all that stuff. But I'm you tr- got to eat like kimchi and stuff. I do. Yeah. I'm a huge kimchi yeah. guy. Yeah. I'm trying. <laughs> Maybe it's my Achilles. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm kind of, I'm sort of like newly obsessed with intestinal flora. Yes, me too. Like yeah. it's a really interesting. It's a good thing. I mean, that's also one of those things you read about like um, uh, happy gut, happy mind. You right. You know, the sort of gut brain loop. Yeah. And that it, a lot of the other healthy aspects of your body like is controlled from by your gut. Your gut. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. makes sense. It I does mean, make sense. That's where the energy and the food comes in. Yeah. You might want to keep that on the up and up. I know. And it takes, it takes a long time to realize, you know, the, even the just sort of fight or flight uh, basic human impulse is, is, I mean, I don't know what percentage, but a lot of it is based in your digestive tract, like yeah. what happens in that moment. Right. Yeah. Anytime you flinch or something, you, you clench your gut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever notice that? Yeah. 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 It's like, yeah, I feel tired. That's funny. Well, let's get into your upbringing. Okay. Where are you from? Uh, well, I was born in Richmond, Virginia. That's right. Your bio, your online, as far as I can tell, and I didn't yeah. go deep cover, but yeah. I mean, there's not a ton of bio information out there, is there? About me? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm not sure why. Yeah. I, anyway, so I am uh, was born in Richmond, Virginia. What was, what's Richmond like? I'm trying R- to think of... Richmond now is, is very different from Richmond when I was there. So I'm 55. So right. when I was born there, it was still like like hard south, southern Richmond, which is like, it was the capital of the south during, yeah. the, during the Civil War. Um, and the family, my family, my Virginia family was um, multi-generations of Virginia citizenry and yeah. so um like both my parents have the classic richmond accent it's like how mayonnaise and it's your mother and your father you know it's like this real, oh, right, really right. thick <laughs> yeah, accent yeah. and but distingu- um, it sounds kind of it sounds a little mm. regal it sounds yeah. a little like um you can hear the kind of colonial residue in that accent yeah. and sometimes it sounds kind of british um so anyway, my dad got a job uh, when I was almost two, and mm-hmm. we relocated to Jacksonville, Florida. Um, 
And so I was there from two to eighteen, and um, Jacksonville. Jacksonville, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like Skinnerd country, right? And um, and sports, right? Football. Y- not football? then. Oh, there really? was no football back then. Oh, okay. What do they call those expansion teams? So yeah, now right, the right. Jaguars came along like much much later when I after it. Because there's like ga- there's college football around Florida. Oh, that's what I meant, basically. Oh, I mean, yeah, because like the Gators right. were a big deal. But like in my family, we weren't like a sports family at all. Um, Wait, what did your parents? What was their racket? So my, uh, I mean, my any kind of the sporty thing that happened in our family was my stepfather, who was sort of inherently athletic, and he mm-hmm. would ride his bike every day, and he would ski and surf, and um, he sailed. So he was like, and played tennis regularly. So he was like a exercise every day kind of guy a sporty guy sporty guy but not from florida originally he was actually from uh jack's beach so he grew up at the beach well how does one get into skiing from that you just kind of go you know like how anybody gets into skiing you just go to the mountains and so they would fly to the rockies and like um he was a good he was a good skier there's like i mean there's a picture in our house growing up was like him in like one of those silver puffy jackets with like a he was in a race or something Mm -hmm. you know i mean he was like champion level but he was a accomplished skier yeah and um and so anyway my so my stepfather was an architect and my mom had a business where she made um women's clothing mm-hmm. so it was a um it was a small it started off as a small company where everything was um, handmade locally by women around the town um and the business grew maybe it took like 15 years and it grew to the level of like where she had um a factory and sort of a wholesale line and then because it's the south a lot of that that product that she was making was um bridesmaids dresses mm-hmm. it's like this huge industry of just making all these dresses um and then it scaled back down to um a sort of what was described as a cottage industry where she had i think she had like Maybe like six or eight seamstresses mm-hmm. um and then she had a store and so you would come to the store and uh, you could either buy something that was like on the racks or you could go into the back of the store and meet with her and discuss like a shirt or pants or skirt or like and, and, and go through fabrics and like discuss and take measurements. And they would design these garments together. Like a custom sort of Super thing. custom. Yeah. And, um, and so interestingly, uh, her clientele kind of aged with her. Right. Um, and then so by the end, it was like sort of like women with a little bit of money who wanted something really tailored to their like aging bodies mm-hmm. um and then she you know my parents were super liberal and my stepfather's architecture uh, uh, studio was on one end of this little shopping strip and then her shop was on the other so they were kind of like the king and queen of this little retail zone yeah and and my mom's shop became sort of like a hub like a like people would stop in it was very social were you there often well by the time it was sort of like up and running and super fun, I had I had left. Okay. Um, I did. That's not true. I mean, I worked there in high school. I you remember were around like, fabric, though. Yeah, definitely around lots okay. of fabric. And I remember like um, the store was in full full whatever um, during high school. And I remember going there and like my summer job was like folding T-shirts and like mm-hmm. putting stuff away from the dressing room. Right. Um, so but, yeah, definitely the smell of lots of fabric in a windowless area is like yeah a major specific right yeah, very specific <laughs> that that sort of sizing smell mm-hmm. and what's the fashion like like what years are we talking as far as like the look awesome 80s fashions it's oh, yeah. kind of sad that i don't have a lot of the stuff that my mom because my mom gave me a ton of stuff that's yeah. like ruffly and like floral and sort of vibrant colors right, right. Like lots of shoulder pads yeah um 
And that I can see the John Hughes movie right now. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah it's, it was a lot like that. And there's a few, like I recently I Googled um, my mom's business name and mm-hmm. found a few super amazing dresses on Etsy. Oh, that like from the people that were shop. selling. Yeah, oh, that's cool. it's just something like bespoke garment from blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, it's like a deep cut, like a, a yeah. kind of like, yeah. not many people would know about it. I know, I know. I mean, there's like a, um, in the Southeast, um, if you're a certain kind of female that went to like Sweetbriars, you know what I mean? There's like a certain yeah. kind of like Southern client that, that will run into my mom. Like my mom was in some store in like High Point, North Carolina. And they were like, are you Blair Wolverton? Oh, really? So there's, she has like a, like a cult following in a certain, certain area. Yeah. But I imagine since a lot of that stuff was being custom made, it was pretty... It was super beautifully yeah. constructed. And yeah. hard my, to come by at this Hard to point. come by. And my mom was a real taskmaster. I mean, her seamstress had to just be, had to be perfect. Yeah. So. Well, did you grow up under that rule? Yeah, but it's <laughs> funny because like I never, I wish I'd learned to sew. Um, the problem was, was like if I had something wrong, my mom had a team of people who could fix the garment. Right. So sadly, I never, I never even buzzed something through a sewing machine growing up. That's a, that's a, I feel like that's a parent quandary of like, Mm -hmm. you know, do you let the, a lot of times when you see, when you're good at something or, you know, and you see your kid trying it and you're like, that's just easier. Here, let me do it. (laughs) (laughs) But then you feel like you're not letting them learn that. Learn and grow. Right. Right. Let him fall down. That's bad parenting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I got, I could have asked. Yeah. Um, I could have expressed more interest in it i mean it wasn't that they thwarted creativity at all right. like that i was went to like art camps and and did all kinds of creative things yeah because it was a creative household yeah so you're just around that and that's the most yeah. important thing yeah, you're in an environment so. where it's like okay this can happen yeah you know and this is what we do and yeah. it's a creative thing yeah and they were supportive they weren't like don't wander off into that sticker patch of, right. of being an artist yeah it was never that that was never the message well, what do, I mean, what's school like in high school? You know? um, well, I went to, I actually went to Episcopalian schools from first grade to 12th grade. How was that? You I know, don't... it was just, that was, I don't know. I think my mom kind of wandered over to this certain school in this certain neighborhood when we first got to Jacksonville. And my mom wanted to kind of like, like anchor into a, a neighborhood that she deemed as like nice. And the people reminded her of like Richmond people. So we ended in this like kind of specific neighborhood. Um, and then there was a school in that neighborhood uh, that we just, I don't know, I just went there. And then my parents are atheists. So mm-hmm. it just happened to be because they were good schools and sort of a good community. I think that was the, the priority. Right. And um, so first through six at this school called St. Mark's. And then, uh, then in seventh to 12th, I went to this other school called Episcopal High School, which again, you know, it's funny, like, when I went to the elementary school, I think we went to chapel every day. That's crazy. I yeah. mean, I guess in a way they, when you think about these like Catholic schools that just let anyone in, yeah. you know, yeah. they're liberal in the sense of like, they'll let you in even if they must know that you're not like a hardcore religious person. Yeah. It was never, you know, no one ever quizzed, no one ever asked me what was my relationship with Jesus. Like never, never, never for yeah. 12 years. They it's just, just like, of, here it is. They'll just like indoctrination was just like part of the curriculum. Right. But I don't remember it being like extra Jesus-y in the classroom. Yeah. But I think we remember we would go to chapel and then whatever, what happened there. And then, um, I don't think there was communion. So then in high school, we would have go to chapel every Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was definitely communion 
because I remember being a high school stoner and be like, yum, a little bit of, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like a little munchies in the morning. Right, whatever. Right. Like, so I definitely remember that as being a thing. And then there was like two classes in high school that were, um, one was like straight learn the Bible, mm-hmm. religious studies. Uh, and then the other one was more of like a um, history of religion or like the philosophy Theology. of religion, yeah. which I actually really liked. Right. Um, and I remember being really inspired actually by the, Father George, this this guy who taught the class, mm-hmm. um, and then coming home and sort of spouting something that sounded vaguely Bible-y, mm-hmm. and then my stepfather like dropping his fork on the plate, like, what are they teaching her at that school? <laughs> it's almost like we're sending her to a religious <laughs> school. <laughs> I know, it was very funny. It was one of my favorite memories from that whole thing. Right. But I'm sure that's like... an. You know, good stuff to learn in the sense. I mean, you're. I think so. You just it's on your radar, right? And I think and it's it, important to be literate of of world yeah. religions so, and belief and how yeah. that can integrate into yeah. education yeah. or yeah, just you know, development in a way. No, totally. And I mean, I'm sure it's hard to have that perspective when you're sitting there in eighth grade and chapel or what you know what I mean but yeah I don't think I had any like deep deep insights but I remember it clicking in some way and then so I've definitely sort of been interested in a super you know not rigorous way about the history of religions just curious yeah and I think you know here in my life now I'm I'm still super curious about religions while simultaneously being confused right by it like yeah. how how are so many people living with that as their main filter yeah. So that that's I think that's the reason that I keep on a quest to understand right. it. It would be like if you were in seventh grade and you took a trip to like Sri Lanka or something. Yeah. You may not wrap your head around that trip, but it, it sort of opens up that box mm-hmm. of like curiosity of other places and yeah. travel and yeah. other Food cultures. Discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. And just right. unfamiliarity, you know. Mm-hmm. Which is a good thing. Yeah. Because it, you know, opens up possibility in a way. I yeah. never thought I'd be sitting here talking about espousing the uh, benefits of going to religious school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, there was like, there was an equivalent school across town called Bowles. And um, I think, and that was like more of a football school. Mm-hmm. So I think because my parents were so non-jockey. And then the, I think there was some other kind of weird uh, decision making that that was like, oh, Certain people went here. I don't. I, I don't know how they decided to send me to the, to, to the Episcopalian school, but it was it's a good school. I mean, I think now it's a much much better school because mm-hmm. school is so much harder now. Yeah. Um. I mean, rigorous. I wasn't a good student by any stretch, but I was a capable student. I I somehow got B's. What about art? Did they have art class? Yeah, they had art class. They had a really like cool little building at the top of the campus that was called the Acosta House, and it mm-hmm. was like a freestanding sort of Victorian building. Um. With two, I remember two art teachers, and they were both like dedicated, super sweet, um, interesting. And I remember kind of dilly, I did, I, you know, I would take art classes, but I remember noticing there was other students that were more dedicated than me. Right. I remember thinking like, oh, I, I had like a motivational problem or a focusing problem, but I would, but I would go and I would take classes and I was into it, but I, I, I must not have really like been proud of what I made or something uh it was always like eh, I can't quite nail it you know because I mean now that I've been working as a studio artist for so many decades I don't draw I don't really like to draw mm-hmm. I use a pencil but I don't draw things right um and then you know when you're going to you know as a child you're constantly drawing they're like okay here's some plants and shoes draw you know here's naked people draw mm-hmm. and so I 
I did it, but it wasn't like, oh, this is this is me. It wasn't your thing. It wasn't my thing. So, you know, I um, ceramics I remember getting into. Uh, I mean, like growing up, so my sister is also an artist. And then when we were growing up as kids, like she would watercolor azaleas and I would like build Lego. Right. So it was like, I was like a makey, makey, buildy kind of person. Yeah. Uh, and she's still painting and drawing to this day. And what I'm still it? more kind of like, I mean, I make paintings now, but they're like, Paintings a sculptor would make. Right. Out of like plaster. Where is she based out of? So she lives in Denver now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's where my brother lives. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, that's funny. That's cool. Um, so, well, whenever you graduated high school, what was the plan then? Like, what Get did the you... fuck out. Just leave as quickly as possible. <laughs> as far away. I mean, like in high school, I had two friends and we were into music and we were kind of like reading like Interview Magazine. We were imagining life beyond yeah. like my mom's couch. Like a little Warhol yeah, a lot of Warhol. And Velvet and, uh, Underground. I, what was the music like scene like growing well, the up? Well, the music I mean, I remember like, um, so, you know, I my first, like, oh, I like music was in fourth grade. And I bought like Goodbye Yellbrick Road. I got mm-hmm. Elton John. I was super into it. Like really big Elton John fan. And then like kind of like want, in my early teen years kind of wandered into just sort of like Florida stuff. Mm-hmm. Like Ted Nugent and like, oh goodness, you know, yeah, like, like Fog Hat and like, oh, like yeah. in the Skinnerd and like Molly Hatchet, like all that stuff. It was just like in the air when yeah. I was like 12, 13, 14. And then I don't know what happened, but like, I think it must have been like my friends through friends. Uh, we started getting into like um, like new wave music, mm-hmm. and so this is like nineteen seventy nine, nineteen eighty. Right, um, this is when it's just starting. It's just well, I mean, kind of like just starting for us. Like now that I kind of know what was happening in nineteen seventy nine, like we were kind of way behind a little bit, but like yeah. still into like um, like you know like the B fifty twos were like a local kind of like southern act, and um, like that band Pylon out of Athens mm-hmm. was super into them. But I remember like in my bedroom like listening to like you know, television and magazine and like suicide. Like we would go to the stores and like buy these albums. And so I had pretty progressive taste for like a, like a, like a kid who lived where I did. Yeah. Um, But that was like through like, like a small friend network that we would like discover music together. Was there like a record shop? A good record shop? There was a record shop. Yeah. Yeah. And I think actually my main friend worked at that record shop, but like, yeah, it was like the thing of where you would go and browse and we'd see shows um and then like i had like there was like a, a local place where bands would play and yeah florida see... always has bands coming through maybe it's just the weather or something yeah but like when bands go on tour they're gonna dip down the florida they do and like now there's like a couple of decent venues at like the beach mm-hmm. um so sometimes I, i'll notice that like somebody I, i'll see up here is then doing a show down there and yeah. i think oh that would have been 10 times more amazing right so you'd be like right up there yeah um, did was New Order and when did New Order start? They were late seventies, right? Like yeah, the early, early so. New Order. Yeah, right. Like right after he died. Yeah, yeah. I think I know. I don't remember the chronology, but yeah, like definitely around that time. And Joy Division. And I yeah, guess. and I All remember like stuff. yeah, Joy Division was was really important at that point. I remember because I went to college, and then um, I had like my first real boyfriend from Jacksonville, and then it was summer, and then I went to college in D.C. And then I did that sort of classic thing where I like didn't break up with the guy, even mm-hmm. though I was like off for the rest of my life. Long distance and he was still forever. <laughs> a little long distance. And then back at Thanksgiving, like yeah. broke up, you know? Right. And um, I remember sitting in my dorm room <laughs> listening to Love Will Tear Us Apart. It's like super <laughs> meaningful. <laughs> 
that's what it's for, right? <laughs> I know. So good. <laughs> Which is funny now when you see like that t-shirt is so popular yeah. and yeah. I don't think most you know, of the people even know, I know who Joy Division is, you know. Yeah, but luckily now there's lots of movies that sort of chronicle and really go deep into like the epilepsy. Oh, I forgot about that. The timer on the light. That's okay. This is nice. It's more moody now. <laughs> this dramatic lighting <laughs> comes in. So yeah, uh because I really didn't know that much about him. And through various movies and documentaries and stuff, just learning about the um, debilitating health problems. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like back then, the way you got your information on that stuff was pretty limited. Yeah. Like, I remember growing up and getting into uh, New Music Express. Oh, like totally. The magazines were the thing. Yeah, like, that's how you would learn about, like, my... I remember My Bloody Valentine. Yeah. Like, being into them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just didn't know anything about them. Right. And then you would get those... So it's like music press magazine. was important. Yeah. Yeah. You just get that interview and it's like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And you, now I know a little bit about him. I know. But that I mystique know. was kind of nice. Right, right, right. And the, I mean, because back then I was like on a quest to discover. And yeah. now I'm like at this point in my life where I just kind of receive right. music. Yeah, it discovers you. Yeah, like that's you, a polite way of saying it. Yeah, it washes that's, over. That's like a Spotify <laughs> sales pitch. I know. It's, it's hard to imagine not having... You know what I mean? Seeing both sides of that coin. And I know that makes, it's like an old person thing to be like, oh, Mm -hmm. when I was a kid. Yeah. But I can't imagine like growing up and not hunting down music and going to record stores and like waiting. Remember when they would wait? There was like a release date. Oh, yeah. And you would wait until the record store got it, which wasn't the release date. It would take time, you know, and you just like keep going back and like waiting. Yeah. I don't know if I ever did that. I think I was just more like... I, I'm not sure. I don't remember that as like a thing. I mean, maybe my friend who was like, maybe he was more focused on the releases. But like, um, but to me, like when I think of that, like I think of like, oh, I can't imagine a life without that kind of desire. Like that was what separated from me, me from everyone else I went to school with. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't, I don't know what their interests were, but they weren't mine. And we, we didn't, we didn't have a lot in common. And I remember having like, you know, experiencing, uh, discovering like homophobia really early through mm-hmm. like, the kids I went to high school with because yeah. my two friends were gay. Mm-hmm. And so I remember thinking like, this is a bad fit. I don't like it here. My people aren't here. I need to go. Right. And that's why I left. Um, and now I think like when I go to Jacksonville now where my nephew, two of my nephews are still living down there and they're active uh, sort of in the music scene and they're, and one's like a pretty accomplished jazz musician. Mm-hmm. And so their, their lives are very rich and full and they have like lots of collaborators and, um, and they're mixed race, so their their world is a lot more open than mine was. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to compare Jacksonville then and Jacksonville now. Well, but, I think that's maybe that's one of the benefits is that the world is a lot smaller. You know, yeah, right. maybe even if it's through media and through, you know, videos or YouTube or whatever it is, you feel mm-hmm. like you can identify with your quote unquote, like your people, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. Like remember like the goth people growing up, it was like, (laughs) it was hard. (laughs) There were three or four, you know what I mean? And yeah, yeah. There was was one in my school. Yeah. Yeah. She was good. Like you would, you had your band, like your couple music acts or whatever that you could relate to. But now I feel like with the internet, you could just be like, oh yeah, those are my people. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like the punks could find the punks and the hip hop people in it. You just say to yourself, well, I'm going to go somewhere where that's, it's more conducive to that. I know. It's funny. It used to just be about a shirt. Like you wore a piece of clothing and it right. was like the signifier. Right. Like that's how I found my friends when I went to college. So I left Jacksonville and I went to Washington, D.C. 
Uh, Wait, where did you go to college? I went, you know, I just was kind of like applying to various schools. So I, I applied to like um, uh, boss, schools in Boston and schools in D.C. I ended up going to American University um, for no real, I just was like, let me get out of here. Let me go to a city. I wasn't ready for New York, but I knew I wanted to just be in a larger place. Um, was it more, was it like a liberal arts thing? Like you didn't know exactly. I totally didn't know what I was up to. You just so, go to school. Yeah, I went to school and I was like, super misguided and I, I applied with incredibly mediocre SAT scores to business to be a business major mm-hmm. because I was like I'm gonna take over my mom's business I just had like teenage ideas about what life was right and that was that was what was in front of me so I was like oh that's what I'll do and then I quickly realized that no not at all and then I got into so when I got to school I started taking art classes at American University and then realized immediately I needed to go to art school. Yeah, this feels right. Isn't it funny yeah. how like yeah. you go to a couple business classes and you're just, I don't it, it I reveals itself. I think I, it reveals yeah, I was, itself quickly. It's like, nah, this is not for me. I was idiotic. <laughs> and then, um, because you know, when you're a teenager, you just like check in boxes. You're yeah. like, you don't really know. You don't know yet. That's the, the, the odd, I mean, I say it all the time. College is kind of wait, not wasted, but you know, it would be so much more effective. Yeah. If you could go to college when you're like 35. I know. Because then you feel like, okay, this is what I'd really like to do. I did kind of go to grad school in my mid-30s, which was helpful. Yeah, I'm sure it was better than if you were like 20. I think so because like, well, so I went to a lot of undergrad. I went to three schools. So I was at AU for two semesters. Then I took a little bit off and then I transferred to um, MICA in Mm -hmm. Baltimore. And I was there for like a year and a half. And then that, that, at the time when I was there, it was... um, I didn't really know what I was up to, and I wanted something more interdisciplinary, and they made you pick a major in Baltimore. So then I transferred to Schoolyard and to Chicago, where you could just That's like, a lot of hopping around. A lot of hopping around. And I was into it. I was, like, excited with the next, like, horizon. Next. Uh, next, <laughs> yeah. And then and then I, I stuck around Chicago for 12 years, but, um, but I remember by the time I did finish my BFA, um, I was not a – I was not a – I hadn't figured out what kind of artist I was, but I, I had done a lot of stuff. So it was still like a bunch of like disparate parts that hadn't quite, quite turned into like a thing yet. Yeah. Um, but then by the time I, so then there was 10 years. And then when I did go to grad school, also in Chicago at the University of Illinois at Chicago, I, um, I was ready to go back to grad school. I was, I was super dying to have this sort of like uh, intensive, you know, two years of people really like, gazing it upon you and yeah. wanting to know your every thought which is like a total luxury definitely so i i sat there and just like drank it up where a lot of some of the some of the people i went to grad school with had come straight in from a bfa and were had like school fatigue and they had sort of like a slightly uh what i i, I perceived as like a juvenile attitude about what this thing was yeah um, it's funny because i have i mean i went straight from undergrad to grad just because mm-hmm. you know i didn't know what to do yeah. and I, I applied just well if i get in I'll go. If not, mm-hmm. then I'll figure out something. And when I went, there was the situation you're talking about was there. But then there were also some students who hadn't been like they took five to 10 years off or whatever. Yeah. And when they went to grad school, they were like, oh, this is time. Like you could tell that they were just beaten just, by life after oh. year after year. So they just <laughs> wanted to take it easy. Oh, no, that's terrible. Yeah. So the, I mean, they worked, but it was like more of like, I'll just go in for a few hours and then I'm just going to go. Oh, well, cook that's a nice dinner and have people over. You know what I mean? And so like, they were basically taking a little vacation. Yeah, it's like kind of yeah time off. And what school like was it? Yale. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny because at least mine, like mine, 
was super small mm-hmm. and kind of like everyone was like like up you like up your ass like what are you doing what are you doing what are yeah. you doing no it was like that too but mine was cheap uic right yeah. yeah it was like dirt cheap so you i mean if someone were gonna like just chill and like drink coffee and like have studio visits at least you weren't leaving with a hundred thousand dollars in debt yeah that's true so there was yeah, no, and I, I to be honest, I think that was maybe like two people who uh-huh. were right, who stuck out, rocking like, out that way. But <laughs> yeah. and they're listening now, and they know exactly who they are. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're they're probably not listening. <laughs> they're probably just having dinner parties or something. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> just right. chilling. Um, but yeah, that's true. Like you want to get the most out of it. So you felt like taking that time off oh, was really. Yeah. Where did you live in between? So I, I so when I relocated to Chicago in '85, mm-hmm. uh, so I finished up the undergrad. I think I was at School of the Art Institute for a year and a half. Um, so then there was ten years of, of still being in Chicago. Uh, what you do? So I just had a million jobs. You know, I was an artist. I never, I never had a full time job. Were you making a lot of work? Or I was, was doing stuff. I definitely was doing stuff. What I was, was doing it like? like? Freaky stuff. Like I was. Um, by the time I left, like when I was finishing up in undergrad, I was making, I was doing like making a lot of like costumes mm-hmm. and like organizing my friends to be in like parades and making weird videos and um, and I would do like so it was the eighties and there was a lot of um, like remember the Pyramid Club in the East it. Village. Where there was like, um, people would do like performance art and nightclubs. Like mm-hmm. it was big in the 80s in the East Village. And so it kind of like trickled into Chicago. So we would do like wild, freaky performance art stuff and like costumes in nightclubs, like gay bars. And um, yeah. so I was doing that kind of stuff. And then. There's I a lot met, of music going on too. Tons of music. I mean, Chicago is a great music yeah, town. And, I, and I've always been like a, like a go to shows kind of person. And so like when I. When I landed in D.C., um, I sort of landed in D.C. like like the, the peak years of like D.C. hardcore in 82. Yeah. And sort of like, oh, like fell into a group of people that were like in the middle of all that scene. Yeah. Discord, the early days of Discord. Yeah, right? exactly. And then, you know, like had like my boyfriend was like all part of this little group of people in around that that whole scene. At the, there's, there's a lot of. There's a lot of attitude in that scene. It was, yeah, but I was so young and nobody was mean to me. I was just kind of like absorbing it. I was just sort of like yeah. going to the shows, seeing the stuff, being into it. It's intense. I mean, I would never get up close and I wouldn't like a, like a any hardcore show. I wasn't like near the stage at yeah. all. I was like back. And there was like the main club in D.C., the 930 club, yeah, of course, yeah. where you could like stand back or you could go to like the, the right. back bar yeah, where like could. the ultra cool people hung out. 930, like when did 930 open? I think it was... Eight, maybe it's in late seventies, early eighties. I mean, because it had Man, been up been and running when I got there at eighty two. Forever. Yeah, forever. And the black cat was that around in that days? was around. Yep, yep. Man, this this place is dig in. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. I know. So like you know, like I was um, friendly with like bands and stuff around then in that town. And who then, were the the sort of younger bands at that point? Well, it was like it was Minor Threat. It was like pre Fugazi. Yeah. It was like um, the Slicky Boys were like these were my friends, mm-hmm. and they were in that band. And then, and then just like bands that came through town. Yeah. And then there was like tons of like dudes that had bands that kind of had one EP, and, right. and that was that seven inch. And now they're like scientists and stuff. Yeah. Right. Um, but uh, well, in Chicago, 
was there were you sort of tapped into the scene as far yeah, as music yeah because I, I had like a couple of like boyfriends that were music writers and I had really close friends that were um, DJs at like a good radio station so there was always like tickets to be had like mm-hmm. lists to get on and like lots of like opportunities to see um, tons of music yeah and then other and I would also just like you know just pay to go to see tons of shows too so I, I definitely saw a lot of stuff I mean and it was like 12 years of shows, but like lots of those like Chicago bands, you know, the sort of like Wilco, Ilk, and like the Liz Fair, and then like the Smashing, like all, and like the Urge Overkill, like oh, all that kind them. of stuff. Yeah. What about like this, like younger or little more indie bands like the Cocktails or, or like yeah, Shrimpo? Yeah, them. Uh, Shrimp, Shrimpo played their first show at my apartment. Really? <laughs> yes. So you knew, did you know Sam? Sam, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So I had this like super crappy, creepy basement apartment. And um, <laughs> crappy and creepy. It was. It was super crappy and creepy. And <laughs> where Wicker Park or something? It or? was straight in Wicker Park. It was like North and Damon in Milwaukee. Yeah. And it was um, and, and me and my three roommates, we like threw this big party, and Shrimp Boat played their first show there. And that's pretty cool. It was good until like these drug dealers like made their way into the party, and like <laughs> stole everybody's purses. Oh jeez! And they st- so there was like two guys. Like one guy like made out like a bandit, like with robbing, mm-hmm. and the other guy made out like a bandit, like selling tons of drugs. <laughs> this is a dual operation. <laughs> it was a dual operation. One guy had his car stolen, and oh, um, yeah. So then, so that was kind of a mom, a, a big night. Like that was a yeah. big night in the history books in my life. Yeah, because I mean that's a lot of formative music stuff that's going on. Yeah, it seems yeah. like you were in these places right, in a hot moment. Yeah, like at, yeah. in their formative. Yeah, like the Bunsen burner stages of it before yeah. it be kind of came. Like because you know Chicago kind of hit the map as far as like the indie music scene there. Mm-hmm. But that's a little after, I would imagine. Yeah. Like, when did you graduate UIC? So I graduated UIC 96, and then I think. And then move? I moved here in 97. Okay. Maybe, no, maybe I graduated in 95, because I, I stuck around for a year after grad school. Um, and when I was in grad school, I worked at a, a bar in Wicker Park. Uh, it was like a kind of a perfect gig. Rainbow Room? Right around the corner. The, okay. um, oh my God, I'm forgetting what it's called. Intertown Pub. Don't know. Sometimes called the inner thigh. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Clever. But yeah, it was like right around the corner from Rainbow. Yeah. And it's like the same sort of like crowd of like band dudes and like rock chicks and whatever, like bike messengers. Yeah, with those, I mean, just in the same thing with 930, I imagine empty bottles around at that time. Yeah, so it's like, that's like maybe like a half a mile west. And Fireside Fireside Bowl was, did did you ever go there too? You know, Fireside Bowl, I didn't, I had friends that did sound and they would always go to those, they would like maybe work those shows. Those are like a little more punk. A little more punk. And I think I'd kind of like aged out of that thing a little bit. Yeah. Um, But I definitely had like friends that were like, they would do sound for those sort of those shows i love that there was sound like because the fireside when you play there it's a bowling alley yeah like that's not you know what i mean it wasn't even really like a venue venue right 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 i mean it's the same as like playing a church basement i guess yeah definitely oh yeah and i mean but it was such a like i remember before going to chicago to play you would hear because i had a lot of friends who went to chicago to play music Mm. and you hear the lore of a place you know what i mean like you hear about it and the bands that play there and you're like oh i want to check that out yeah then you go to it and it's just like oh it's just a crappy which i think are the better more memorable shows oh definitely the the uh the kind of basement shows are some of the best ones that i've ever been to i know i remember seeing the violent films in some crappy church basement that's awesome so those kind you just really remember that somehow more i think well it's it's more intimate yeah you know and there's usually a story about it 
Yeah. <laughs> I feel like yeah. basement shows usually there's some sort of story. Yeah. Whether it's you or the band or something. Right. There's something I remember seeing the remember. replacements a lot. And those were always mem- memorable shows. In like small venues? Very small venues. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I remember like, um, so that band, the Slicky Boys, they were like mm-hmm. this DC kind of like punk pop band. They, um, I remember they opened for the replacements a few times in pretty small venues. Yeah. And they would always use like crash and burn shows. Right. That's Ended cool. up with like, you know. Broken things in tears, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> like damage left behind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Scorched Re- earth. The emotional wreckage, like <laughs> laid bare. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, with the work that you're doing at this time, mm. I guess in grad school, what's the work like? So in grad school, um, what was I doing? So I entered in just like whatever, doing some like stuff that wasn't very interesting. Uh, and I was still really searching for... I don't know, like the voice, like the, like whatever artists search for that is their voice. Mm-hmm. So I was still looking. And, um, and then, so the school that I went to was a regular university. So I was able to take, um, you know, in a real art history class and like yeah. a philosophy class. Gen and, eds, as they call them. General yeah, education. Gen, yeah. Cause like all the other schools in my undergrad were, um, art schools. And yeah. so like your, um, humanities are kind of watered down and a little whatever, like easy-fied. Right. So. I think that that was like a, I was like, okay, this is, I'm just going to go in. I went in hard. Like I was the opposite of those like chill grad friends you had. I was like, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to work super hard. Yeah. Um, so I, I started kind of like making, I think the seeds of where I'm at today were, was where I was like trying to make um, uh, sculptures about paintings mm-hmm. um, and then filtered through all kinds of like, what I would describe as like less relevant sort of theories that I was reading about. I was like trying to like process this like theory stuff that I was reading in grad school and like make work that like somehow reflected this like increased knowledge. Right. Remember those days of like, yeah. (laughs) Oh, I've got to like, like fit my work or, you know, it's got to resonate. Taylor. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember making like a couple of like, Oh, nailed it. Like a couple pieces. I was like, Oh, nailed it. Yeah. And then, but then because I didn't really, have like some sort of like natural rhythm to to my art making I, I i couldn't move i couldn't move from that point i was like well i just nailed it with this one piece in grad school but i don't have a i don't know what to do after that so did you it, just repeat no i just was sort of stumped and then i just was like tried some other stuff and they were like passable and like you know and it all it's like you sink or swim by like a crit which right. is this like weird false world um but uh but then as I was, like, getting close to – I took a class, actually, that was kind of like, oh, this is, this is something I can grab onto uh, about German romanticism mm-hmm. and um, the sublime and the sort of, like, Casper uh, uh, David Friedrich, the, yeah. the, that kind of world. I was like, oh, I can, there's something here that's, like, meaningful to me. So I started kind of, like – that's where I started delving into this, um, this project of, like, trying to make sc- sculptures that were about painting. Yeah. Um, and so I did these sort of like landscapey kind of projects. Like right after I left grad school, I made a um, a video of a set. I made a, a giant set in my I had I, my last year there. I was in a super giant loft space. Um, so I made this huge set that was like probably like uh, like twelve feet wide by like forty feet long of like what would be like a a ruin, mm-hmm. like an ancient ruin made out of clay basically um so i cast all these brick parts and like just built kept building and building and building and then made a video of me just sort of like 
like cir- like circumnavigating it, just like this slow, and then slowed it down in edit. So it's just this kind of like um, meditation on a ruin. Mm-hmm. And um, how did you show it? As a video, just as like- a grainy video, because I made it on that. God, did I? I think I might have even shot it on that Fisher Price Pixel Vision. Oh, one of so those. So it's like things. super grainy. Yeah, yeah, like crappily lit. Um, and so <laughs> it was like, and then I did make some sculptures that were like in the room versions of ruins. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, this is not, this is not it. This is not, it's not nailing the, the, the thing that I'm going for, which is like a memory. Right. Um, so that's why the video was more effective. It was like once, twice removed and it was grainy and then it was slow. Um, and then shortly thereafter I moved to New York. And what was, I mean, what were you thinking? I'm just going to go, do I think this I was just ready. I was like, okay, well, I I could stay here and like maybe my options are this, that, and the other, or I could just go. I could go and have my options be like a world of options. Yeah. Well, um, a lot of people do dig their heels into Chicago. Yeah, yeah. I have lots of friends that are there and happy. The town and, like, and I mean, they got big old houses and like it's it's much more comfortable. Yeah. But um, what are you saying? It's it's expensive to live in New York. <laughs> <laughs> So I, so I, yeah, I got here and, um, and so the, the decade between the MFA and the, the BFA, mm-hmm. um, I just had like a zillion sort of art, what jobs that artists get like fabricating. I worked for like, um, TV commercials. I worked for party companies. I worked for theater companies and like, like fabricating things, a wardrobe stylist, prop stylist, prop fabricator, like a million Man, jobs. Freelance I, central. Freelance central. Like you name it. I had that job, like backdrop shop. And like the best one was like this crappy company where they did like party displays. Mm-hmm. And lots of artists had this job where you would make like the foam core football for the bar mitzvah, oh, like right. all those like table and party decorations, mm-hmm. just like churning them out. And, um, so I had like at this point, you know, in the eighties you would have like a book where you would have like pictures of your stuff. Oh, like the portfolio. A portfolio. Yeah. And then so and then then I went to grad school and I was like, No, I'm not gonna do that anymore. I'm gonna do a little teaching, I'm gonna keep my bartending gig and that's like a more kinda like better suited life for me as this like newly grad schooled person. Right. Um so then by the time I moved to New York, you know, getting a teaching job here, like is next to impossible when you first roll in. Mm-hmm. And um so I, <clears throat> I had this book. I had all these pictures. I had all this experience, and um, and I just like started um, looking for <clears throat> like fabrication shops, mm-hmm. like model shops, and things like that. So I immediately got work right away. What were you? What was the work? Like, what um, were you making? You know, I worked in it's these model shops that did like, um, you know, like there's like a, a sketch on Saturday Night Live where they need a set yeah. or a prop or like a giant hot dog suit. You know, that that kind of stuff. Right. So all those kind of things that they used on Saturday Night Live were farmed out mm-hmm. to these small shops. So I worked for this, um, did some freelance jobs here and there with just like shops like that. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I worked for this like horrible job doing the window displays, Lord and Taylor, like the Christmas window displays. Oh, did you work for Lord and Taylor? The- no, it was like some other gross shop where you like made, where they made those like animatronic, oh, creepy. Oh, like like one of those yes. places. So my first job was Windows. Oh, I worked at Macy's. Spath, horrible. Yeah, well, I mean, Spath basically the what Macy's would do would like farm out. Oh yeah, 
those Christmas windows. So we would just do all the side ones. Yeah. You know, like the Broadway windows, we weren't allowed to touch. That was like the big thing that they spent all the money on. We did all the the fabrication stuff for like the other. Yeah. Which were, you know, window displays, but not like the the epic animatronic like Santa in Wonderland. Sort yeah, of thing. well, I mean, I wasn't doing anything fabulous. I think I was like throwing glitter on something and painting signs. <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, it's a gig. It's a gig. So it was a gig and it was like super miserable. Like there was a punch clock and a bell that rang and a like it was just a horrible, horrible job. Yeah. And then... Um, was it based in Midtown? Yeah, it was at Midtown Shop. It's a hard place to work, right? Yeah, it was gnarly. And then I didn't make any friends there. Everyone was gross. And then, um, oh, I, and then I remember getting a, a, a. I met someone at the first shop I worked at, and then <clears throat> I got a call for a weekend fabrication gig mm-hmm. to help the stop motion animation show get up and running, get their sets up and running. And so I was like hired for a weekend and like stayed at that job for four years. And so that was at MTV Animation. Oh, nice. And so that was when I had like the one full-time job in my whole life. You had to meet some cool people there. I did. So that was like much funner. And um, so like my boss, we're still really good friends to this day. Yeah. Um, and so I was like like first round in, last one out. Like, mm-hmm. And, it, you know, lots of people came and went throughout that whole show. Um. And now, I still, did, did any of the stuff that you did over those years, does that enter your studio practice today? Yeah. I mean, so when I was, so when I got to town, I was like still making these like giant mountain sculptures that were sort of like this, this remnant of German romanticism. Mm-hmm. The uh, sublime. Sublime. The sublime. I had these like monstrous mountain sculptures in my apartment in mm-hmm. Greenpoint. <laughs> and, um. They were like hundreds of pounds. So when I would show them, it would take like two like sweaty dudes to like get it down the stairs. Oh my God. And um, so then, so then when I when I got hired at MTV, um, it was like the cushiest, most like uh, you could just go to the you could go to the model shop. Where, so it was that show Celebrity Deathmatch, and there was a model shop. <laughs> <laughs> remember that? Yeah, I remember. Wait, what year was that? It was um, ninety seven to two thousand and one. It was that long ago? Yeah. It feels not that long ago. Yeah, I know. Well, it keeps coming back. That's probably what makes you think it's been not that long. Yeah, but I remember when it came out. Yeah, yeah. I know you might have been like, are you? were you enjoying it? Or are you just like... I, I guess I just was... You knew it was I didn't there. really watch it, watch it. I just saw it. Yeah, because it was like mostly like 12-year-old dudes yeah. that were into it. Yeah. But, it was like um, claymation, like, yeah. Sort of. No clay, but claymation. Yeah, or it was like that a, vibe. It was like... Um, cast urethane heads and foam latex bodies okay and so the model shop where all the puppets and sets were made we could basically go in on the weekends and just crank stuff out yeah and so that's when i discovered um so they the heads were cast out of this um two-part urethane resin that mm-hmm. smooth cast 300 stuff not so familiar it, with it's any like of a that super but common it, uh, is it it's like, like toxic? there's some right there there's some like that see that red oh, stripe thing yeah, yeah so it's like a plastic and it, it's, is um, it toxic or is it safe? Um, it's not good for you, but it's not like polyester resin. It's not going to like destroy you immediately. Uh, no, it's not going to destroy you immediately. <laughs> and then Some it was pretty well, is. yeah, it was pretty well ventilated shop. I mean, it was like a spray booth um, where you would, where you would cast stuff. Right. But um, so I started like noodling around with that material and just casting things. And I started making, so that simultaneously this, the, um, the work that I was making was, um, it's like pushing that idea of. Um, making making the sculpture about a painting with mm-hmm. like um, 
the parts and the impulses and the and the sort of the components of these paintings, like a still life painting, like trying to make a sculpt, like still life sculpture. That was my quest, and so I was casting these parts and using this material. Um, and I don't think I really succeeded a lot. I don't think any of those sculptures were like very good, but they were important sort of process. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then I kind of like. I sort of like stripped away the the components of the still life painting into like parts. And so it was like kind of like um, the components were sort of washing away and I would look at a painting and think like, oh, well, like it's actually this fabric that's, that the, the fruits are on. It's kind of holding this, this the tension of this thing. Uh, so I kind of like focused in on um, sort of gouache and, and sort of um, intricate paintings of like floors and walls and textile patterns. Um, but then at the same time, kind of like opening it up into um, sort of abstract representations of interior architecture. Mm-hmm. So kind of like sort of sprouting and moving in different directions. Um, and so meanwhile, I was casting a lot of stuff at the, in the shop at yeah. MTV. And I developed this um, – I just was like, I like this material. I like the kind of plasticiness of it. I like casting it. Uh, and then I got a um, one of those Socrates – things where I was like uh accepted into like a little exhibition there oh, right. yeah. um and the the theme of the show was suburban architecture uh or suburban landscape excuse me mm-hmm. and and so I had all this like interior architectures like gouaches of like parquet floors and patterns and things so so then I took I took that sort of like the 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 pattern of say a linoleum kitchen floor and transferred it to uh a, a, a big wall. So I made, I made like a retaining wall at Socrates that was 200 feet long. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was basically like a um, kind of like quasi sort of watered down like Islamic motif that then gets kind of transferred watered down into like say a like Ohio kitchen floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was that sort of pattern. Uh, and I broke it down into these separate color parts and cast all those pieces, like hand cast all those tiles out of the same urethane material. Um and that kind of launched like the next chapter of my work, which was about sort of repetition and scale and 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 architecture. Um, and pattern was pattern, and pattern, yeah. and pattern straight up. Like I mean, the pattern had been like once I kind of like turned my gaze to the floor and started doing these. Um, I did lots and lots of these um, gouache sort of parquet floor drawings. Mm-hmm. Um, that that sort of. Uh, Mes- how I got so mesmerized by that sort of locked me into that and then yeah. I haven't sort of shaken it and then so uh, the pattern and then repeat the repeat and the and the variation within that repeat became a constant and still hanging around yeah. today yeah so well how has it mutated I mean from because there's quite a gap in between yeah. now and then how did it kind of well it was interesting because like around. yeah so I had this big old piece that I made at Socrates and I was like okay I was like over budget and I was like, it was, I mean, I, I hand cast 30,000 individual tiles and then had to like assemble all those little tiles into like square foot mosaic sections mm-hmm. and then built the substrate out of the park with, with a guy, I had like two guys out of the park and I had two, a bunch of people in my studio casting stuff. I would like run back and forth. And then, so I had like embarked on this project and it was killing me. It was like so much work. It's a lot of work. So much work. And I was like super over budget. I was like, I gotta, I gotta keep going. You know, when you're sort of like, you're half in and you're like, 
sink or swim again. You can't bail. I just threw money at it. I was like, I got to realize this thing because I know it's going to be like this, it's like this gateway, this like weird portal. Um, so I pushed and pushed. And then it really, I was like, okay, this is, this is, it worked out. I, I'm interested in this thing. And then, so I, I basically developed a body of work from that same motif and just mm-hmm. sort of like different colors and started making like, um, I started taking that, that same pattern um, and making uh, sort of screen forms, these sort of modular uh, sort of wall-shaped pieces that had, say, big holes cut out of them. So they would, like, bisect the room in these sort of complicated ways where you could kind of see through the piece. And it was also, like, so it was like space-making, negating, creating. Um, and things kept getting scaled up and up and up. And then by the end, I had made a piece that was, like, like 12 feet by eight feet by eight feet and it needed like people to help me put it together or say if someone's coming to the studio and i and i just realized okay i I sort of hit the the back end of this particular project um i didn't i did i was sort of tired of the material i was tired of the cost of the material i was wasn't it probably wasn't good for me you know working with that material for so long it sounds like a Pretty big production. It was a huge production. And then there was this other kind of interesting component where was um, that I haven't felt since that body of work, which was boredom, Mm -hmm. like production, like straight production. Because I would picture the piece and then I was like, oh, fuck, now I got to make it. And it would just be like, it would be like if you're like a long distance runner, like training for that run. Like that's what it felt like. And I haven't ever felt that since really. Like I now when I make something, even if it's repetitive, it's not. It's not like grinding production. Well, it's almost like the the sort of analogy of the running is interesting because it's like that marathon finish line is so far away yeah. that you just have to slog and slog. But if you do more bursts of sprints, you can keep your mind more activated and that everything's a little more fresh sometimes. Yeah. I mean, some people love the marathon. Right. Not me. Yeah. But it's hard. No, I'm I mean, like an intramural to... person. Right. I need like constant, <laughs> constant change. Right. right. Yeah. Like a circuit. Yeah, okay. circuit training. That's what me. were those things? Uh, remember in grade school or high school, that would be like out on a field day or something. We'd go out and do like a circuit of different like. <laughs> yeah, that was like my like. It was like a. I don't know what level of hell that was, but I was like not athletic <laughs> in high school. <laughs> well, the egg toss. Like you could, yeah, anyone could do yeah, that. Yeah, right? okay. I'm on board with the egg toss. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean that just keeps you a little more. Um, yeah, and I I know now energized. like I I I need like um I need I need a lot going on. I mm-hmm. like a lot going on. Yeah, in my studio, I like to work on a bunch of stuff at the same time. Yeah, you've got it set up like it's, it feels like stations. stations. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I kind of do that where as soon as I get like I've had enough of a big painting, I can go work on a collage or yeah. work on a computer, mm-hmm. and then I'll move back to yeah. you know what I mean, like just keeping it fresh in that yeah. sense. Yeah, I know. I'd like to have like a you know, there's like those apps where you can like track like where you run. Oh right. I'd like yeah. to have an app of like my foot pattern in here just like to like watch my brain activity. The ant trail yeah. of like seeing where you yeah. move the whole time. And then like map. it would log in like the nap. Yeah. <laughs> they must do that. Yeah, I'm sure you could like your watch. You could probably like do that. I watch a lot of soccer and they'll do it once in a while during the game. They'll do they'll pick a player and they'll show oh, you the heat map of where yeah. they cuz now they all wear all those trackers. Oh yeah, yeah. Just everything is so scientific, yeah. you know, like their fitness. Yeah. But like it's really cool to see like where to it's where they're red, going. You know, like, yeah. where they're focused tracked. On. But yeah, you probably got that. And here you you'd have a pretty good heat it's map. It's pretty good. I started tracking my steps lately and I'm like, "Oh, I got a lot of steps in here." Yeah, well, and you have stairs too, which is nice. Yeah, and I've been trying to like embrace those stairs. Yeah. 
So like, what's a, what's a given studio day? Like, I mean, do you come in, do you, is it just based on like work that you're working towards like a group of work or is it, you know, you're just coming in Mm, it, it, throwing it, yourself curveballs, or I, yeah. you know, in that same vein of like, I like variation. I have my my work rhythms are I like variation. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, for my entire adult life, I have been like a project based person. Yeah, whether it was like in the studio or or like as a, as like, like my other life of like a worker, per, like a job having person. Yeah. So it was always like a um, a period of a thing. So it, so I like that rhythm. And, um, so I, and I definitely still kind of work like that. I work sort of like chunks and like projects and, and in like between projects, I'll have like a sort of, I have no problem just sort of walking away from the studio for like a week or two, Mm -hmm. you know, because I work so super hard sometimes like seven days a week, like 14 hours a day, like, like figuring stuff out and working super hard. Um, so I mean like best case scenario, I'd roll in at 10 Mm -hmm. and like leave, you know, at six, but that's not really my style. I mean, I like being here in the morning, but I'm also, I also super enjoy waking up at home and like doing whatever happens at home for like a couple hours and then coming here and then not having to worry about when I go home. Right. So I don't, you know, and I, you know, I have a partner who doesn't really care about like any kind of like scheduling perfection either. So. Right. Like, honey, you have to be home at seven for dinner. Yeah, never. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's freeing so it's very like super spoiled you know um i mean i could probably use something to i I, in fact i do often like i need i need that like oh now yeah you know and i think you know obviously like people with children have a lot of like now like let's wrap it up i gotta do i gotta go and be a parent or whatever yeah it's it's kind of not it's it's never not there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Unfortunately, yeah. it's just always on the clock in one right. way or another. Even when you do have the time, you're like, all right, this is my time until this time. And yeah. that's when I'm back yeah. doing so, this or doing that. So, But yeah, I, I mean, I remember those days before having, you know, a, a, a child that where, you know, I could basically just work from nine o'clock in the morning and then just keep going until yeah. I go to sleep. And there were a lot of days like that. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think that balance is nice. It sounds like you're getting that in the mornings where you take your time getting up and rolling and getting to the studio. Maybe I do, but then like sometimes some there's time. like a period where, um, which I, I, I really enjoy that, but mm-hmm. I also like, um, a little more like go, go, go. So, um, so my boyfriend, uh, so he works, um, still in stop motion animation primarily. Mm-hmm. And then, so if he's on a gig, he's typically at this, this one production company where their studio is like a half a mile down the road. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe he'll work on a job for like six to eight weeks and then, so we'll get up and we'll go and I'll drop him off and then I'll come to the studio and said, so I'll get yeah. here at nine thirty ten, like for weeks on end. And then I do kind of feel like, oh, this is like the grown up way to be like, oh, this is like, this is how you're supposed to run a business. Right. Um, but then left to my own devices, I, I, I lean towards like working toward into the night. Yeah. Like if I'm, if I'm left without any, um, normal scheduling devices do you uh do you go out to see music ever i do sometimes yeah you know i um you know now it's like kind of like slightly like some sort of post-punk nostalgia tour like that's a lot of what i'll go see right it's like whoever's back out on tour and sometimes they're like super good still and sometimes it's like oh yeah depressing quite you're like oh this isn't really (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) but um yeah like i got on that mailing list for um you know that blank forms I don't. Blank forms. 
it's some kind of like booking thing or like they organize shows and they're always like kind of like freaky and cool and like unusual new music like international stuff so like mm-hmm. I've seen like this Indonesian Indonesian duo that's I think called Senwaya that's cool and like this Japanese quartet Pioneer Works that was like a three hour improvisational set so it's just like a mailing service they let you know service. yeah and they programmed like um, they programmed they curated the um, the music program for Josiah McAhaney's show at oh, Cohen yeah. yeah yeah I know I, I saw I didn't it was an amazing program I saw nothing I saw <laughs> none of it so I you know I don't think I also like pay attention when shows are going to happen. So like a lot of times it's some like old timer who's rolling in, you know, like whatever. Um, I'll hear through two steps away, like some guy who I know who's in a bunch of bands. Like he's like, oh, so-and-so's coming to town. Yeah. And then that's kind of how it's funny because in playing music and then going out to see so many shows when I was younger, how important that was. So important. And it's still, I love seeing live music, but it's just hard to get around doing it as much as I used to. Yeah. Yeah. But I've been fortunate enough to collaborate with a lot of musicians Mm -hmm. and that kind of forces me to get out because Mm -hmm. if, if friends of mine are playing, then I know about it because I'm just social networks. You know, I see, Oh, I'm playing here tonight. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to go see that, you know? So that's kind of a nice way to keep plugged into it because then you also feel, kind of like personally creatively connected to what they're doing but yeah it is hard to just keep on because it's it's kind of like a thing that it's you got to keep up on yeah and i'm not dying to be smart i get a little bored like i mean remember like um in minneapolis that that whatever that venue was in minneapolis where they do the showcases and then um it was like when like um soul asylum and like replacements like that era right so yeah. they had the, there was i forget the name of the venue but it was like a showcase so there'd be five bands and every band would play like three to five songs mm-hmm. i'm like that's to me like the perfect perfect set. yeah and like yeah, not I'd the say, two like, hour long rarely case. have i ever craved an encore you know what i mean yeah so <laughs> you hit the point where you're like all right that's enough <laughs> I'm like I'm we're good. going yeah <laughs> um so I do, I do like, uh, you know, and it kind of gets a little draggy. Although, like that three-hour Japanese improvisational thing, like oh, yeah. I, it could have gone on for three more hours, and I would be super into it. That sounds pretty. So cool. I mean, people were like laying on the floor, and like you could want. There was four stations where each guy had like a pile of like detritus and, yeah. and, and, and amps and or whatever like mic mic detritus, yeah, and yeah. then one guy's station was just like knobs, you know. Mm-hmm. Sounds um, pretty cool. I can't even remember what they were called, but they were fantastic. Um, so, so sometimes I have like zero boredom, but I think if it's more kind of like, um, wander off in your mind in that kind of improvisation stuff, like say like, um, Indian music or something where you just like, you hit the sort of boredom and then you push through to some other state of mind. I like that. Yeah. 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 Like the raga sort of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, I haven't seen things like that in a long time, but I yeah, know, those are really nice because yeah. you can kind of hit this other plane. Yeah, yeah. I Whereas if it's just like, like a pop band playing, you're like, okay, there's 10 songs, I get it. There's a few surprises. Yeah, which is, it can be great, but then it's it doesn't hold you in the same way. Yeah. I mean, when I was young and going to shows, there was like a danger level, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like it was, there was something scary. I remember seeing like the butthole servers and like they were clearly <laughs> super tripping and like it was just like in the 80s yeah. or like I remember seeing this band crash worship. There were people who were fucking against the stage. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And like 50 gallon drums were on fire in a room, in a venue. It was crazy. Uh, they don't make them like they used <laughs> <I know>. to. <laughs> I mean, I guess in the in late 80s or 90s, they had the hair metal stuff where you could yeah. have gotten a fire. Like yeah. someone's, some guy's hair catching yeah. on fire or something. Yeah. But it's pretty much yeah, not the same thing. So the danger, like, and, it, and it, if it is dangerous, I'm usually like, I'm going to bail. 
Although yeah. I did go see um, some some like you know whatever like code violation type situations where a friend of mine is um, <clears throat> deeply into um, oh crap what's it called I'm totally spacing out so it's like Cuban oh, I'm totally forgetting what it's called a kind of music yeah and um, it's Afro Cuban. Uh, oh, it'll come to me in a minute. Anyway, so and so we go see these like um, these music performances in like all these crazy places all over town. So we he did this one show in this like basement of a housing project in the Bronx where it was like things could have caught on fire, and like people couldn't have the egresses were blocked. So like, and I did that in the last like decade where I'm normally not going. Like a risky, a risky show. where like you're gonna maybe this is die. Like Afro-Cuban jazz or something? No, not salsa, bachata, mm. reggaeton. It'll it'll come back to me. It's like um, I'm sorry, I totally forgot. We can, when you when you remember, we'll just edit that in. <laughs> I'll just bark it out. Meringue. It'll just <laughs> pop in there <laughs> in a totally different microphone sound. Yeah. We were talking about. Yeah. But yeah, I, I guess that's, you know, the adrenaline of those kind of things keep you in the moment. You yeah. Know? Yeah. But yeah, I haven't been to shows like that. And I think it, I, I did, um, there's an old band that uh, used to play on bills that my band played in back in, you know, the early 2000s. And they were kind of like the screamo band, you know, mm. and I did the artwork for the record. So I went to see their show. They played at St. Vitus in Greenpoint. Oh, you yeah. Know, that metal bar. Yeah. yeah. Which is wild. But yeah. uh it was really cool to see, and there was activities going on in front of a lot of like movement and physical aggression, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to stay way in the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was never like in the thick of it kind of person. Never. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was never the mosh pit person. Yeah. I always loved going to see Fugazi and waiting for Ian to like yell at the people up front. To cool to, it down. Yeah, yeah, like he, it had to happen. Like he had to yell at them. Like, right, at right. Well, he's always been dad. Yeah, yeah, he's laying down the law for the <laughs> kids. <laughs> <laughs> even way back way back he was always had like a, a dad vibe yeah definitely he's like an old man probably trapped in a young person's body when I think so he younger. always felt a little mature back then yeah so well let's talk about the work now and okay. like what you're doing yeah and, you know um okay so okay so after that 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 period where I was making those sort of large sort of screen type forms mm-hmm. these sort of large sculpture kind of architectural interventions I just was like, okay, I'm done with this work. And then I basically, I think I sat in my studio for six months, like kind of staring at the wall, um, just not quite knowing what next. Mm-hmm. And then um, I I had uh, had a gallon of this Venetian plaster in my studio from, I'd actually like coated out my bathroom with it. Mm-hmm. And I had seen one of those like Albers um, pieces that are in the Yale Museum. They're, they're kind of classics where he, carves into the you know the sign like the label making technique where yeah. you like carve in mm-hmm. you know that body of yeah, work yeah. so i saw those and i was like oh that the sort of the sort of depth and the honesty of like opening up that material and revealing the next material beneath it really kind of hit me yeah. um because i had been for a while one of the things about the the, the cast urethane um was that I was interested in that the pigment went all the way through it wasn't a topical painting it was like the pigment like was like all the way through yeah. the, the piece saturated saturated and like it just the color was the thing it wasn't mm-hmm. like on top it was like right um so i t- that kind of i don't know i was into that piece and then so i, I took some of that plaster and just mar- masked off a piece of 
area on my wall and troweled on a bunch of joint compound and then troweled on some black plaster on top of that and drew into it. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting... I, I responded to the material. I responded to the way it looked, the way it worked, the way it acted. And mm-hmm. so then I, then I sort of transferred that, that Venetian plaster onto a series of MDF panels I had just had hanging around the studio. And that was like, oh, this is interesting. I like this. And I started embedding metal into it and like, um, like sort of like a um, inlay, like a metal inlay um, with, with these same sort of like geometric kind of architectural forms. Um, and then also kind of like responding to the sort of like Louis Kahn material cast, irregular kind of broken down cruddy cement sort of texture of the plaster um sort of masking off areas that so then i would have these like stepped areas to the painting mm-hmm. but meanwhile still having like a pretty basic geometric form um and then so i did that for like i mean i i first started working with that material um 12 years ago and i'm still use it every day i love it i yeah. love the material and then so i just sort of like wandered I just wandered with this material with this body of work for so many years and just kind of um next thing I knew I was like a painter like people were calling me a painter um but you saw it as a sculptural thing yeah I, I, I think mean, the it, physicality of I it. think it is a painting but I'm not a painter yeah I think there's like something there and then I mean I, I, I use I don't use a brush I mean I prime the panels with mm-hmm. a paintbrush and a paint but um beyond that i use like a plasterer's tool uh to build up the layers and i'll mask things off i'll I'll, um depending on the complexity of the painting i'll generate like a complex mask and like trowel on a bunch of plaster and then peel that mask up and like just keep like stacking stacking levels yeah um so in a way it's kind of like printmaking i use a lot of printmaking i kind of stumbled into printmaking where i didn't mean to so i was making these paintings that were like um, just troweled and masked and like sort of basic forms. And then one day my neighbor across the street in my old studio had seen me do some like, um, I'd done some like MDF wood block printmaking in my mm-hmm. studio. Um, where I was just kind of messing around. And then he'd seen what I was up to and he had one of these like hobbyist silkscreen machines called a Udo where mm-hmm. like housewives could like make t-shirts and napkins. Right. And um, you buy, and Michael's marketed it. Mm-hmm. So he handed me this thing and it changed my life, changed my life. Like I, now like the screen printing of this plaster is so integral to the way that the paintings are made. Um, and then so from that, like I've just been screening the plaster for like nearly a decade. Yeah. And that's like part part of the layering of the of the how I make the paintings, right? Um, and so then, do you feel like a kinship to kind of like brutalism and that sort yeah. of neo concretism? Yeah. And I, mean, I don't even know. I think if there's something closer than kinship, it's like I I spring I spring from that really directly. Did you see that Legia Clark show at MoMA? Yes. Oh, please, that was so good. Like those interchangeable sculptures. Those things. Like, those things are so part of me that I don't even I mean I know that everyone responds to them so emotionally Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah those pieces uh, and it's interesting because I see a lot of so now I'm kind of like looping back to sculpture Mm -hmm. Um, and there's like people who make sculpture that are making hard like like to my friend Sarah Peters who's making who's like her 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 relationship to sculpture is so old-fashioned it's mm-hmm. so epic and like layered and stepped and like ultimately with these bronze beauties um like 
And then there's a lot of people making sculptures that I see that are operating with like kind of like a flat pack, a flat yeah. pack technology. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's, it sometimes feels a little like noncommittal, um, like easy. And so, but, but then I see those Leisure Clark pieces and they're like basically flat pack technology. Right. And they're so poetic and they're so perfect. Well, it's the patina of age and when it came about, I think. And, and, and uh, her, like, the, the performance right. element. And, yeah. Like, her yeah. whole relationship to, like, the body and movement and clothing and, and being female, ultimately. Yeah, it can be really confusing if you see images, like, if you don't experience it firsthand, I think, or right. read about it. You know what I mean? Like, you're like, wait, what is going on here? I know. But then once you, if you take a deeper look, which a lot of things in life take that, you know yeah. what I mean? Uh, it's really amazing, like, yeah. that body of work. Oh, and, no, it's, it's just one of my, like, top people i just like um i mean because you know the the obviously like the paintings and the sculptures are like i, I spring from that as well like that's yeah. that's where i that's you can clearly see what i like by 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 my body of work right like well, who, who are my heroes you know yeah and it's like i can't help but uh think of like some of those stereo lab or yeah. uh yeah stereo lab record covers of, right like, that kind of sort of mod mm-hmm. graphic sensibility of like super graphics and stuff, but where it's yeah. taken to some sort of new expressive place, you know? Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that might be up your alley. It's in there. I mean, I think the work was like, um, I sort of, I think re- like repetition and pattern made a baby that is op in my work, but I wasn't driving towards op. Like I didn't, I wasn't like, oh, I need to, I need to make something op. Yeah. But it just sort of like one move led to another move where like now I work in the studio and each, each new thing that I do is out of some like not quite nailing it before, which Mm -hmm. I think is like the, where I'm like the most healthy and productive and fertile is like, oh wait, maybe I should try this. Maybe I should try that. You know, like that one time in grad school where I like nailed it and I couldn't move. Yeah. So I think not being happy with something to like, I don't know what the proper healthy percentage is, is what keeps me like, oh, I need to like try this other move. And then a lot of times I'll build projects, like I'll build a body of paintings or like I have started working on these kind of like uh, printed linen textile installations. Yeah. Um, those things those yeah that stuff and so i'll i'll pre i'll i'll, I'll figure them out what they're going to be like in photoshop and then so as i'm trying to figure out what they're going to be i'll do like five or six iterations and so mm-hmm. then those all those kind of like generating like digital sketches make make more ideas for more more things and so and then i started making some sculptures out of cast steel um, excuse me steel and porcelain enamel mm-hmm. um and so and then so I feel like now I'm at this point where um, these little like floating islands are kind of coming together in this like one blobular form of like painting, sculpture, textile um, that is kind of where I come from, you know, like architect and a clothing designer. Yeah, it's so, funny, right? Yeah. It all comes back to the beginning in a way. It does in like a really comfortable, warm way. It's not like yeah. I had like an amazing, perfect childhood, but like there were some moments where like when you're surrounded by a certain kind of like visual stimuli mm-hmm. um it imprints on your brain right in yeah a way. I uh, think so. unconsciously but it imprints on a way that like i mean it shocks me that like it's such a like comfortable thing yeah yeah well it's like going home yeah but i don't like going home right so that's but, why it's shocking but it's almost like going home not now but yeah. then you're almost like in a feeling of yeah 
Or like recapturing your youth. No, I, well. I know because none of that feels right to me. But like, there's something that's like. Um, but I definitely admired like what what my parents were up to. Like their path in life was something else. Like, oh, that's an interesting path in life. Or my stepfather, he ran a business that was like him and like maybe an assistant, and they did small projects. Yeah. And then my mom had her thing, and it was like interesting, and she was super busy and doing cool stuff. So they were good role models of of, of do, like traveling down your own path and mm-hmm. like creating your destiny and like making this thing, you know, come hell or high water. Yeah. The other quotient I think is that they're, um, they feel sonic. The work. Yeah. I think like so. Because like well, there's a rhythm. Like, there's like there's a movement pulsing, right. you know, it's like a good. rock and water. Yeah. Whereas a lot of that kind of graphic, like the super graphic thing or the, you know, that, that design installation pop kind of mm-hmm. stuff feels kind of static. But um, there was a lot of, you know, early animation stemming back from like Hans Richter and Eggleston and yeah. stuff that has a sensibility of that movement right. where it's operating in this sort of thin, well, I don't know, mystery land. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it kind of has that feel to it. I try. I try. I mean, the, one of the things I try and make sure is like it's like, like, a, like a loose and kind of sloppy way that I print make. Mm-hmm. Um, I try and have it be sort of like... Um, as, as untight as possible. Yeah. No, but still maintaining like, because like with those sort of fabric installations, like they need to hang a certain way in order for like the thing to work visually. Right. But like, I want it to have like a handmade feel. I want it to like the materials that I choose and the, and, and the processes are all kind of like, like I, like I print on that linen. Like I want it to be like a really nubby, natural, beautiful linen. And then the, the, the sculptures are like, steel and then the enamel is a glass so this is i want these things to be like sort of basic kind of like earthy materials and then on top of that is layered this sort of like crisp imagery this and and then from there and then after that then they'd start to fall apart again they start to be sloppy and smudgy and like you can see when you get to the paintings you see like pencil lines that 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 are how i kind of lay it out and to make the painting and like i'm sort of grabby and smudgy and i like the thing to be have some sort of history marks on it yeah they they feel it feels like they're their own world in a way, but I it's organic it. and it's moving yeah. and it's, yeah. it's not just an image. Right. You know, that's just made. It's just yeah. organic living, breathing thing and process that moves across these different like areas of working. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, I sort of surprised myself how I, I've hunkered down on this, like this particular language, uh, say for like the last two years. Mm-hmm. Um, because prior to that, I had like maybe like four bodies of work that were kind of like I would weave them in and out, you know, um, yeah. kind of like, oh, I'm going to experiment with that thing again or like, oh, I'm going to switch back over to this other thing. And so I feel like I had these like horses in the stable that are still waiting to, to be like rode again. To run together. Yeah. yeah. Or just like, yeah. So it's an interesting sort of chapter right now where I look forward to sort of whatever happens. Yeah. Well, it's it's exciting like group of stuff that you know i feel like you can't really i love work where you can't really fully understand what's going on completely yeah <laughs> you know what right. i'm saying like there's like right. these different components which are really intriguing in different ways and you know um it'll be exciting to see where it goes i mean do you have what do you have anything coming up or anything that yeah, you can yeah. share with people as far as like how they can see your work or the best places to engage with what you're doing um well i i'm 
let's see, I am doing like um, more and more. It's interesting. I'm, I'm sort of like finding myself collaborating with like um, architects and mm-hmm. architecture. And so and that so for better or for worse, that's typically a private space. Right. Um, so that's kind of a bummer. But then Instagram is kind of nice because then you just like post a picture of it. But then the amount of people that get to experience these things is small. So right. that's that's the kind of like the heartache of that. But. But then I'm doing I'm doing a show in the fall uh, in Los Angeles in a nice artist run space called Odd Arc. Okay. Uh, and then I probably would do like you know some art fair stuff, which mm-hmm. is like whatever for better or for worse. It's like more people see it. A ton of people see your work. Yeah. A ton. Like so much more than when you have an exhibition. Totally. It's really like that's the gnarly truth of that. Yeah. Um. But. Uh, yeah, just some like group show stuff and some stuff that's kind of like pending. But as far as like seeing my work, uh, it's easy to see like online, I guess, a little bit. But yeah, um, do you envision that some of those sort of private, sort of architectural spaces that you're working within can lead to more public, large scale yeah, like, things that more people will be able hopefully. To see? I mean, I am finding myself lately on more and more like short list situations for public art stuff. Mm-hmm. I haven't had one sort of be finalized with me as the winner yet, but like. More and more, I'm sort of finding myself in that situation. So I feel right. like, you know, hopefully, matter of time. hopefully something will yeah. pan out. That'd and be then, cool to see. Large yeah, I mean, scale. I'm into scaling up. Like, yeah. I, I like the, um, I did a project this past summer that was one of those sort of fabric installations um, in Bridgehampton out in, in Long Island. Yeah. And um, it was big. It was big. It was like 13 feet tall and like it was um whatever 21 times three feet is you know it's like 21 panels mm-hmm. uh sort of wrapping around this giant room so when things scaled way up i was like oh this is this is i like this it's exciting yeah. to sort of like have it um really like push uh so i'm interested in that that sort of scaled up thing right um but not Let's. We're gonna keep it out of that Socrates thing of like where it takes. <laughs> yeah. Well, luckily, I feel like I've come back around where like I know how to ask for things a little bit better. I know yeah. how to like budget things a little bit better. Plan it out. Plan it out. I was like, it was new. I was like, just sort of sorting out like how you do stuff. Um, yeah. So yeah, hopefully next time maybe a slightly bigger budget. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you have all that experience, you know, to, yeah. to navigate that stuff. Yeah. It's yeah. it's such a different can of worms to work in like in public spaces or bigger space and like how you work on the budget and all that stuff it's so different than just being in the studio working on a piece of paper yeah i know and i was just talking about that like how like with public art like something kind of dies a little bit like it's never the perfect thing like it's like with with especially with outdoor work like Mm -hmm. you got something dies a little bit in the work so hopefully one day i can make that piece i can make a piece that does live outside that is like full on the way it was supposed to be. Yeah. Like you have to make all these like compromises with right. like whatever weather and, and people who chime in on like how they want it to be or something like that. The But the uptick is that so many people see it. Yeah, like yeah, a yeah. different It's different than a gallery where it's a destination. I mean, people just find the work, which is nice too. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah like the, the, the art in the subways now. It's like getting better right. and better. Definitely. And imagine how many people, I mean, more people see that work in mm-hmm. a day than might see that artist work in a lifetime. In I know. It's I know. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. And then the weird thing is, is you can touch it. Yeah, that's you true. You can walk up and you're like, oh, that's that thing. I mean, I don't think, um, you know, they barely touch that stuff. Right. The artist, it's just mostly those mosaic 
artisans, but still, there's something like really intimate. Like I just was rubbing those dogs at 23rd Street yesterday. Oh yeah, yeah. And there's something <laughs> just so intimate about that. Definitely. Yeah, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for having me over. It was really cool to I know to thanks chat and by. to meet and to see your stuff. And uh, I look forward to seeing your shows in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast and donate to it at soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can find more images on Instagram at soundandvisionpodcast. You can find more information about my work at brianalfred.net or on Instagram at alfredstudio. Many thanks to Golden for supporting the podcast. Many thanks to Evan Marion for the intro-outro music and Michael Lovett for the introduction don't forget to stop by the patreon page for the podcast patreon.com slash sound division podcast you can donate a very small amount on there or more if you'd like and you can get your name featured on a future podcast and you can also get a hand drawn thank you from yours truly thanks so much thanks for supporting the podcast head over to itunes leave a rating and review if you can Thanks for listening.